Hello and welcome to the Behind the Goals podcast. Uh, I think this is episode 50, uh, so it's a bit of a milestone for us. We got to 48 before lockdown uh, and we've had a Club Development Scotland series in between uh, uh, then and now. Um, but with last week's episode and now this week's episode, I think we've hit the magical 50. So that's, uh, that's important for us anyway. The watershed moment. Yeah. Um, this week we're going to be talking to Stephen Lawther, a um, good friend of ours. He's a Wraith Rovers supporter. He used to be on the board of Supporters Direct Scotland. Um, he'll be known to many through his recent book or the, the forthcoming book that's about to be released. Uh, it's called Arrival, uh, how Scotland's women took their place on the world stage and inspired a generation. And it's a story of the 2019 World Cup, but also the long journey that the women's national team took to reach that point. Um, so it's a, gr a great story, a great book. And um, we're going to talk to Stephen about that, um, you know, get his insights on the story uh, and you know, just see what that what impression that leaves us with about women's football. Um, you know, Andrew and I were both there for part of it as well. Andrew, you went out for the group group stage, is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah, the free the free group games, yeah. Yeah, I couldn't manage to make it to the whole thing, but I, I couldn't let Scotland reach a, a World Cup finals and not be there. So I managed to get out for the, the Scotland-England match out in Nice. So we saw firsthand what it was like being there, part of that story. Um, but Stephen was there for, for the full journey and stayed on in France for, for the rest of the tournament. Uh, they'd also been, he'd been there with his family to the Euros two years before as well. So, you know, a, a really and a long exposure to, to the, the, the most successful period in, in the Scottish, Scottish women's uh, national team. Um, so let's hear from Stephen and then we'll, we'll join you again at the end to, uh, to talk a little bit more. Well, Stephen, thank you very much for, for joining us on the, on the podcast to talk about your new book, Arrival. Um, I wondered if you could just give us a bit of a, a basic overview of what the, what the book is about and the sort of angle that you've approached it from. Yeah, thank, thanks very much for having me on. Um, yeah, the book's called Arrival. I'll look at the subtitle and read that out. So it's Arrival, How Scotland's Women Took Their Place on the World Stage and Inspired a Generation. Um, and I guess, you know, in a short answer, it's about the World Cup and it's about the team that qualified for the World Cup and played at the World Cup, the Scotland women's team. Um, and that was, I guess, the starting point for for wanting to write it, being, being a fan of the team and obviously seeing what they had achieved. Um, but I think, I guess, there's a, there was a number of things I wanted to do with the book. Um, I mean, it is a great story, and I think it, you know, like like any, I always think any book should have sort of drama, excitement, you know, personal stories, triumph, and 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 heartache as well. It's got all of that, and mm. some, I think. So this sort of story speaks for itself. So I didn't have to work too hard really to make it interesting or or to to have an interesting story there. But I think probably one of the main things, and goes back to my previous book on Wraith Rovers, it's a bit of an untold story in a way. And that, you know, yeah, something's happened, but in many ways, I think it's it's not out there maybe as much as it should be and, and maybe doesn't get the credit that, that they deserve. Um, and I think just even when I was going through and talking to the players in, in the book, I mean, a lot of the players talked about the invisibility of women's football over the years that it's not written about, it doesn't get the coverage, uh, it's just not seen. And obviously there's been campaigns you know, Glasgow says you can't be what you can't see and stuff, which I've, I've tried to tackle that. But definitely the game has suffered from being sort of hidden or invisible in some sort of sense. And, and that's getting better. And, you know, there's obviously a lot more coverage now and, and positive things happening. Um, but I think it still probably isn't where, where it should be. And and I guess that was part of the, the reason for wanting to write about 
this group of players and, and this team that have achieved something actually to tell that story um, and, you know, in a sense to hopefully play a small part in raise, raising the profile of the game and of, of what that team have achieved and, and give them the credit for, for what they deserved. Yeah. I think that, uh, so Stephen, a uh, you know, massive increase in the media attention for the, the, the national team in the summer of 2019 and I guess the six to 12 months leading up to it, maybe that's part of that invisibility because it seemed to come out of nowhere and in the minds of most you know, football supporting public, this did come out of nowhere because there was so little coverage before and it's one of the things that surprised me about, about your book itself. I, I, I picked up the book expecting it to start in maybe 2017 with that campaign, but it starts right back 40 years earlier and tells that really, really long story of invisibility and, and actually and, 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 and women's football being actively ignored and, and diminished. Uh, so you go right back to those, those early days. And, and, and I was fascinated. I'd heard a few of those stories, but um, was it difficult to, 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 to piece that piece of the story together for the book to set the scene for the, for the, for the eventual arrival 40 years later? Yeah, it, it was. I mean, and, and, and just drawing a contrast with, I mean, as I, said, I wrote, I've written a book on Wraith Rovers, the League Cup winning team. Um, that, in a sense, was more straightforward because I was there every step of the way of that team and what it achieved. And so I kind of had a real sense of, of the story. And I think one the thing that struck me, first of all, in coming to this was actually I, I wasn't there a lot of this, but what happened and I wasn't sure. And actually, there's not even the documentation of it that you would get in the men's game. So, you know, you go to the men's game and you get statistics and, you know, reports going back 100 years. Uh, the women's game, it's, it's, it gets much patchier, much quicker, I think, in terms of just a practical research side of things. And I think also, I guess, on, on more of a personal note, I realised that I have come to women's football relatively late and also sort of slightly by accident. And I think that probably does go back to that invisibility thing. And it wasn't really something I was, I mean, obviously I'd heard of Julie Fleeting and seen little bits here and there over the years, but it wasn't really something that I was hugely aware of until my own daughter started to play football uh, mm -hmm. with three of her teachers at her primary school at Craig Lockhart started a team. Um, and so I, my first match was in 2013. If you think about my first football match was way back in 1979, I'm giving away my age, but, you know, and I've loved football since then. It actually made me think, do you know what, that's like 34 years where I was not aware or didn't pick up on the Scotland women's team. And actually, there's a little bit of sadness about that. There's a lost opportunity of that's 34 years I could have been watching and following another another team and, and watching even more football. So, um, so I think it struck it struck me as that, and I think that's again goes back to that invisibility thing. You know, in twenty thirteen, that game was at Tyne Castle. We lived just around the corner from there, and we thought, right, we'll take my daughter who just started playing. I'd obviously gone to Wraith for a number of years, but I'd started playing herself. We thought we'll take her down, uh, see some female role models. You know, see women playing the game rather than having to watch Wraith Rovers. Um, and I think that that sort of just pricked my consciousness of actually there's a, there's a there's a national squad here that's doing something and actually once I started to take interest it actually is doing something that's really interesting and then that obviously led on to qualification for, for the Euros and I think that probably so we went to the Euros as a family and I think that's probably another reason I wanted to write the book that actually seeing going there watching the team and um, you know supporting the team and but also seeing my daughter's reaction to it and just seeing how inspired she was by that team, by seeing these elite female athletes playing football 
on a on a uh, European stage, you know, an international tournament. And I, again, I just thought, you know, well, actually, this is not just a great football story. It's also a great story about people who are role models and actually making a bit of a difference here in terms of how people not just view women footballers, but view 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 women generally. Yeah, and I, th I think I think young players need role models, um, and I, I, I guess I guess it helps uh, that, uh, that a girl making making her first steps in, into competitive football as a as a teenager has role models of her own gender to look up to, and there's a there's a there's a story that she feels like she can be part of because the story, as you you see, all the way through the sixties, seventies, eighties, were girls you know being allowed to play with boys until they were 12, 13, and then having to stop playing because there wasn't teams for them and there wasn't role models for them to look up to. There wasn't a, there wasn't a, an adult game really, uh, you know, that we that we could really had any sort of scale or substance to to, to play. And 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 the, the legends of our of our women's game in Scotland having to compete for other countries. Um, yes. So we have a World Cup winner, a Scottish World Cup winner, but she didn't play for Scotland. You know, Rose Riley had to go to France and then to Italy to do that. So I mean, bringing it back to to, to your family and what that means for, uh, for 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 Grace, you know, having those role models and having that possibility opened up to her. Do you think that's kept her involved and passionate about the game, where she oh. might have drifted away from it? Absolutely. And I mean, I, I saw it firsthand. I mean, before we went to the Euros, I mean, she'd obviously come along with Wraith, uh, to Wraith with us for a long time or been dragged along to Wraith. Um, but, and she did play, but, you know, it, it was a very much a recreational thing. She played with her friends at school, you know, played for the school team. Um, she did join Burramere Thistle, which is our sort of local club. But again, was it was just a thing that she did. It wasn't it wasn't a really a sort of core, core part of her life. We went to the Euros and almost overnight her attitude changed and you know you, when she came back you could see that there was a difference or our view of it was different it wasn't just something she did on, on the side it became sort of her thing if you like um, and that that sort of played out and in, in, in terms of I guess how she progressed through through the game she got into Edinburgh Sports Academy and 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 ultimately ended up in the sort of Burramere Thistle MPL team before before everything stopped but it, it generally pushed on and even now you know Football is her thing, and it's a real part of her character, and defines her, and sort of marked her out in a positive way at school and amongst friends and, and stuff like that. So, uh, and obviously, even on a practical level, is a real positive activity for fitness and mental health. And mm -hmm. you know, she wrote something recently about you know when you're on the pitch, you sort of you don't have to think about anything else. So it is it's that escape from I guess the the challenges of being being a teenager. Um, but yeah, no, hugely, it had a huge impact on her, you know, if that, and, if, and I guess that's why when I, when I named the book, you know, that inspired a generation is very important because actually, um, you know, if, if that's done that for one person, you know, what impact has that had? And obviously then speaking to people, you know, people of Glasgow City and stuff and, and at Burramuir as well have had huge interest in numbers going up and obviously the numbers show that there's much more people playing the game, but yeah, as I said, I think that, that long view, I think, came once I started speaking to people and got that understanding of actually, yeah, Scotland qualified for the World Cup, but what it actually took them to get there, I think, really hit home, both in the practical sense. So, you know, it, it, you're just, just speaking to people, you got a sense of what people had had to fight against in the past. And, and that actually makes what they achieved more impressive. And just those, like you said, those stories, you know, Rose Riley having to, you know, being banned and having to go and play for another country to actually re represent, you know, represent internationally 
you know, people like Elsie Cook having to buy strips in a jumble sale for the first ever mm -hmm. sort of official Scotland and England game and so on the badges, you know, Sheila Bebe having to sort of fundraise to, to go on a trip, you know, right through to, you know, Shelley Kerr obviously has, has, has told the story about having, having to share tracksuits on her international debut. And, and I guess one of the other things that stuck out for me was uh, when, when I was interviewing Laura McGowan, she talked about, you know, the Scotland players going away with the national team, you know, even in the 90s and having to come back, go into the toilets at the airport and hand their gear back before before they left, you know, to, to, to disperse. So, you know, just, just, just think, things like that, I think, just underlined, actually, this is not a normal just play football, achieve something. There's actually, there's been a real battle and a real, and, you know, things I guess the thing that seems to me incredible now you know if I think about again go back to my own situation you know you think of when Scotland were last in the World Cup men's side you know in 1998 so in 1998 you know I was almost in my 30s planning our World Cup trip with my with my wife and brother the SFA didn't even have responsibility for the women's side at that point and yeah. you know you think that seems almost unbelievable that that you know reflecting back that at that point which to me, I know it's not recent now, but it feels quite recent, that, that that seems unbelievable. So to have got to this point, to have qualified for two tournaments and to have battled through that, I think makes it an even more impressive story, I think. Do, do you think that it, it's now being embraced um, by, the, by the SFA and by the, the kind of hierarchies of Scottish football, that battle that you know, took place over decades, it seems to have finally been, been won and, and it's now an integrated part of Scottish football. How, how significant do you think actually qualifying for the Euros and the World Cup was in getting that recognition? Do you think we would still, it would still be a struggle if we hadn't qualified for those two tournaments? Well, I, th I think the first thing to say, I think they're probably, I, I'm not sure the battle has been won. And again, speaking to people, and I guess when you read the book and, and, and uh, towards the end, I reflect on sort of where where women's football's at and where the team's at. Um, you know, yeah, it's way further forward, but I think it's probably not where, where it should be. Uh, and it's not, you know, it's it's that, that resource and funding and backing uh, is, is there and is way better than it is. But I think... There's always a risk, I think, of just the sustainability of that, or of, of actually going back a bit in terms of, of the support there. But I think the actual, um, I think in terms of the actual qualification, I think it was absolutely huge. I think just again goes back to that visibility thing, you know, to to see, you know, and particularly against the context of the men's team not having been there for so long, you know, to see a Scotland team at a Euros at a World Cup. It's just you know it's just like you know there's a generation that haven't haven't seen that yeah. and, and and haven't witnessed that so I think that that's huge but again you know and Anna Senior told a story about even after the Euros sort of being in the meetings having the same arguments about funding and budgets and resources so you know it, it, there's no guarantee that just because you know these two these two tournaments have been reached that actually things are secure and and, it, and it's all over and the battles won. I think there's a, I mean, the thing that struck me again is the players talking about that constant need to sort of fight the fight and, you know, make things smoother for those that are coming behind you, you know, in the same way that your Rose Riley's and Shelley Kerr's and Julie Fleeting's did, uh, that actually the players now are, are, are aware of actually we've got a role to keep pushing this and keep making it as, as strong as it can be because it's not, it's not there yet. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask about, I'm particularly interested in, Stephen, is the, the something you mentioned there about the sustainability of it all, because it does feel like the World Cup was 
a bit of a watershed moment really for, for women's football in Scotland. Thinking back to the game at Hamden before the World Cup as well, 18,000 yeah. people turning up, which seemed huge at the time. Um, I wondered what you thought needed to happen for the game to be more sustainable going forward. And I'm thinking particularly of the kind of the women's league game in Scotland, because obviously a lot of the players in the, in the, in the World Cup squad um, play their trade in, in England rather than in yeah. Scotland. I think it just comes back to that support and it comes it comes back to that sort of parity of, of actually this this is important. So in the same way that the, the SFA would look at the men's team and say, right, this is an important uh, part of Scottish football and a, and a really important part of Scottish football in terms of inspiring people and energising people about the game. I think just it needs to have that same parity of actually in the women's side, it's exactly the same. It's, it's, it's that sense of this is an important team for the country. And as we've seen, particularly in 2019, it can energise the country and bring bring people together. So I think that, that you know, the resource needs to be there. In terms of the, 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 the league game, I think there's real challenges there. I think, you know, there obviously are, um, I'm not an expert on this by, by any manner or means at all, but, <clears throat> you know, there obviously is more money coming into the game, which is great because people, you know, from, from the squad particularly can now play professionally in, in Scotland. Um, I think just the issue is sustainability of whether that uh, stays. You know, you know, it's great the Rangers or Celtic are putting money in, in, into into squads and and people are paying full time for those teams. You know, fantastic. Um, I guess the, always the concern is if things change or if things shift or priorities shift, both on a on a club level and a national level, then it's somehow seen as secondary, and then that that funding gets cut, and then then you're sort of back to where. And so I think. I kind of feel for clubs like Glasgow City, who you know that they are sustainable and have proved they're sustainable, mm -hmm. and over the over the years, and and there's a slight danger that other clubs can come in and eclipse that in a short term. But actually, is it sustainable for the long term? If it is, great, that's fantastic, and you know it will develop. But it's it's that it needs to be given priority and given that parity. So if, if there's something there, just at the moment, that's sustainable, but it's operating at a lower level than men's football is. I, I, I personally see the risk of you know, established you know, men's sites coming in, setting up a, 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 a ladies, ladies, women's, girls uh, side, putting lots of resource behind it, and then us ending up with the flaws that exist in the men's game of you know, too, much, too much resource concentrated in the hands of too few clubs. And I, I wonder if we, how we protect the, the thing that's distinctive and special and different about, about women's football in Scotland just now and, and not fall into the trap of, of, of getting a short-term win by getting some full-time players at a couple of clubs, but then they get so distanced from the rest of the, the domestic game that we end up with a you know, kind of just a mirror version of what's happened in the men's game where it's not a particularly competitive league and hasn't been for, uh, for, a, for a long time. I mean, how do we, what, what, can, what can women's football learn from what's happened in men's football and avoid some of those um, kind of traps I think. I mean, I think again. I'm. I'm no expert in this, but I think. I think it has to. Uh, there is. There is a risk of that, and and I, I. I sort of struggle a bit because you know what. One of the things I don't like about the men's game, league game in Scotland, is is that dominance and that dominance by by two teams. And actually, you know, arguably there, there's there's been dominance on the women's side by by different teams. But mm -hmm. having gone to a lot of of women's games, it just it feels naturally a bit bit more competitive a bit more open and also it's not just those two same teams that are just uh, just winning everything now uh, but I think 
I think it. I think it has to be. Again, it has just to be. Has to be the support there. It has to. I mean, I almost. I, th- I think women's football has to do what's best for women's football and not just assume that that the, the, the actually what what exists in the men's game has to be replicated. Yes, there obviously are some things that you know is is worthwhile uh, to learn from. But I think it has to do what's best for for itself to make it strong and make it sustainable in that long term. And you know, an example of that is is the, the and the irony is we're going back on this, but is that you know when it's played, you know, it has been played. There wasn't, you know, Anna Sino, One of the things she did when she came in uh, was was change it from a winter season, you know, to to a, to a summer season, yeah. uh, and and made that made a huge difference in terms of just you know all the way down the levels of when people played and. And the environment you're playing in, um, and I, and I think you know it's, it's obviously there's there's moves to go back to a winter season. So I, I think you just have to question what what's best for the women's game, what what is going to develop in the long term, and what's going to get to a point where the league the league is strong and ultimately the league is sustainable, which is I think the key key challenge. I mean, one of the one of the things is just visibility as well. I mean, again, just going back six months, you know, the the fixtures weren't even on the BBC website. So, you know, the Scottish Women's Premier League, you know, we would go to games and it just frustrated me. You know, you would be looking down this list of games that were on a Sunday and it was, you know, the Polish League, the Danish League, all the way down to these really sort of quite bizarre European leagues that were giving you results, but they weren't putting up the, you know, the Scottish Women's Premier League results. Now that's changed and that they are there now, which is which is good. But again, there's just a, there's a visibility thing of letting people know that, the, you know these games are there. These games are hugely entertaining. Anybody that watched the Glasgow City Hibs Cup final, the Scottish Cup final, you know, hugely entertaining game and full of drama, full of excitement. So it's letting people know that they're there. What what, what differences do you see in that experience of supporting those those matches? Obviously, it's at a different level and different sizes of crowds. But you know, what's the what's the what does it feel like to be watching uh, women's football, and, and how does that compare to the men's game? To me, it's just football. I think. I mean, I think. I don't know. I'm, I'm always a little bit wary of of sort of that comparisons being drawn because I think, you know, it ultimately it as I said, you know, that that Glasgow City uh, Hibs game, and we we've gone to watch Hibs women. We go to watch Hibs women, Hearts women, uh, and have gone to games. Um, so for us, for me personally, I'm a Wraith Rover supporter. It, it, it's less tribal. It's it's not you know I, I'd sort of would go and watch and lots of those teams and, and enjoy watching those teams. So it's not for me personally. It's not that sort of I'm a race support and that that's who I watch. But I guess I've even in the men's game I've always been open to going to other other games. But I think I think you know again I said I'm not a fan of comparisons between both the games. I mean the disparity in resource and support and investment over the years almost makes any sort of comparison meaningless. But to me it's it's just football. You know, it's football. Does does the women's game have the same capacity for that drama and excitement and tension? Of course it does. It's football, and you know, again, are are these elite athletes that are producing sublime bits of skill? You know, just watch Caroline Weir's goal the other night, or if you watch Kim Little playing for Arsenal when she's at her best and sort of controlling the midfield. You know that the 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 the, the what makes football great is there. So it's you know that to me there's not a difference, and I think. A lot of the motivation that people who sort of draw want to draw those comparisons are to sort of do down or criticise the women's game, and that somehow it's not real football or it doesn't count or it's of of lesser value. And I think you know, I think that's 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 you know that's that's nonsense. It's it's football. It's entertaining, as the World Cup proved and as this team proved. Uh, you know, 
Cup is fantastic and you know re- really entertaining because it's football and football's fantastic and really entertaining. Yeah. yeah. I wondered if I could ask you a little bit about the kind of practicalities of of, of, of writing the book and at what point you decided you you wanted to write it and um, what the kind of methodology was as well in terms of you know a huge amount of, of research went into it so what did that kind of process look like? Yeah I mean I, I, I guess having gone to the Euros that's when the sort of seed of, of wanting to write about the team and actually I, I was sort of quite close to writing about right after the Euros it just just a sort of personal circumstance meant that I couldn't do that at that time and then actually the World Cup so it took it took it to another level so um, the process, I think, uh, I, I work, uh, again, when I did my Rate Rovers book, um, part of my professional work is interviewing people. So I guess that's where I always start in the sense, partly because it's to me it's people and it's people's personal stories and it's the emotions and, and all of that that is interesting. But also that's that's practically where I'm quite comfortable interviewing people, uh, quite comfortable sort of, I guess, analysing or writing that up and in some sort of way as I do through work. So... Uh, but as I said before, yeah, I had to do a lot more research and I had to, um, you know, go back and understand the story a lot more um, and get the sense of sort of what, what, you know, what this story is about. And as I said, once I started speaking to people, then that sense of actually there's a bigger story here. It's not just a team that's got to the World Cup. So it expanded out uh, very early on. I, I got to speak to Anna Sino, which was fantastic, and talked to her at length. And you know that, and people like Sheila Begbie, who was the head of girls and women's football at the time, and again that quite clearly made me understand that there's a bigger story here. And actually, it wasn't just a case of oh, what an overnight success, you know, the turn up at a Euros and a World Cup. It's actually there's a long process of change in the culture, of developing a new culture, of taking learning from Sweden and from other bits of Europe eh, and around the world, and bringing that to the Scottish game, of developing the club game you know, all that stuff about changing the season, establishing the National Academy. So there was a process here uh, in much the same way that in, in a race context, Frank Connor laid the foundations for Jimmy Nichols' League Cup winning team. It was pretty clear. There's quite parallels here that actually Anna Sino laid the foundations for, for the World Cup winning team as well. And then obviously Shelley Kerr took that on. But so I think I, I wanted to sort of detail that journey. So that made me realise actually there's a, there's, there's a lot more to this story that I need to understand and need to find out and, and ultimately want to tell. And again, that the battles and the struggles uh, of what people had faced over the years, you know, which, you know, if you don't know them, is quite incredulous. You know, the fact that in 1971, all the European bodies, governing bodies around Europe took a vote to recognise women's football every single one said yes and the only one that said no was Scotland you know it's, it's, astound, it's astounding really you know so you know the fact that we've come from there to, to where we are now again just just made me realize there's a there's a wider story to tell here. And I think that format that you used it's it's, it's very <clears throat> it makes a lot of use of direct quotes from people who are there at the time talking about it it, it makes it a really lively book to read. I mean, it's it's just it's, it's continually on the move, you, you, and it, and it's a chronological story. You you start you start at the start and you finish at the finish, and it kind of flows through there. And I I found it it was it was great fun to read. Um, it was you know that word that doesn't really exist. It probably was on the front of a Jeffrey Archer novel that was on my mum's bookshelf when it was a kid, unputdownable. And for me, it was one of those books. I mean, I started started on the Saturday evening, put it down, and then picked it up on the Sunday morning and didn't put it down again until I'd, I'd, I'd finished it. 
uh, around about lunchtime. It's one of those books that's it's moving. And I think, you know, from, from my perspective anyway, what made it such an easy book to read was that there were so many voices in it. Um, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a cold analysis of, of the failings of the game or the failings of the structures in the game and, and how it happened. It was just basically a lot of people telling their story about what it was like, you know, going through, stepping through from year to year, from decade to decade. Um, and I and I think that's 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 there's a there's something quite amazing in that to get the level of access that you did in order to, to get those stories. Were there were you surprised by the level by the level of access by how willing people were to talk about that? No, because again, in my last book, I, I took the same process and found that people were incredibly supportive and incredibly willing to reflect and talk about it. And I think. As you said, you know, one of the things right from the off was I was quite clear, this is not my story, you know, nobody's interested in what Stephen Lawler thinks about women's football or what, what I have to say about what I did at the World Cup, uh, although I did put that in my forward a little bit, but it's, it's the player story and it's the, it, it's the management story and it, it's those who've gone through it and, and they, they, in a sense, can tell it way far better than I can and I actually have a far more interesting story to tell you know, way, way beyond what I can say. I think the other thing I was really keen to do was actually tell it from a female perspective. And, and I think, again, going into that, um, talking to people and, and, and actually starting to unpick the story, uh, I realised quite quickly, actually, that this is different from, from before and this is different from other football stories. Uh, and I'm quite, I'm, I'm quite proud of the fact that my sort of short forward aside it is exclusively female voices in the book. And I think that gives it a very different feel. Um, I think there's something like 650 odd quotes from people, you know, and they are all female. Every single one of those is female. And I think that that's important because it's I mean, it's not someone else telling their story. It's the people who were part of that story telling it. And I think that gives it both an authenticity and to me gives it, as, as a football fan, gives it a level of interest because, you know, hearing what, what Nicky Doherty was thinking after the, you know, the Argentina game as she came off the field, it, to me, it's fascinating. You know, I, I love those bits and love those stories or, or what people felt like going out on the pitch or what it means for people to represent Scotland. You know, that came through really strong and that sense of togetherness as well of like, you know, people being in, in this together, I think was, was really important. And, and I guess one of the things that came through quite a lot, which I sort of experienced myself at the World Cup is that, it feels a lot bigger than football. You know, when we went to the World Cup, it felt, you know, the atmosphere, the sense of community, it felt to me, I've been to a number of football tournaments over the years, it just felt you were part of something a little bit bigger than just a football tournament and actually almost, you know, without getting a bit misty-eyed, you felt part of a bit of a movement, uh, you know, there. And I think almost being writing this book has felt quite, quite, quite similar. So, and, you know, I think, you know, reflecting about it now and from the, the sort of start of the feedback I've got from people it's almost a small p political book in a sense that you know I'm quite a political person and I've been involved in politics and worked in politics and and equality particularly something that's always been quite important to me and I think that's probably in you know reflected how I've told the story or or how the story has has been told and why it brings in you know what people went through or what people struggled to to get that sort of le level of equality but but yeah, no, in terms of the access, I mean, people were, were fantastic. I think there was a slight challenge in terms of people who are still playing. You know, my previous book was people who'd stopped playing. So I think when people have stopped playing, 
they're mu they're in a much stronger position. And I think to sort of reflect on what they've done, I think you know a, a number of the players obviously uh, they're st you're still playing, and I think that that means that you know stopping and reflecting what you're doing is probably not where you're at. You know, you're focused you're focused on your career, but people were fantastically helpful. I mean, Shelley Kerr was amazing in terms of both talking and, and you know and, and putting me in touch with other people like Julie Keating and uh, Colleen Hamill who again were, were great and really open. I, I guess when you were talking to them about the, that world the World Cup campaign and, and how it ended and I'm sure we don't need, need to give a spoiler alert, alert here you know I think all our listeners will know that it ultimately ended in disappointment but also there was some hope in there about the future but I, I guess when you were talking to them particularly about those three matches out in France it may it must still have been quite raw for the for the players for the coaches that were involved in that and something that struck me when i was um when i was reading those sections of the book uh, and their reactions to it was they responded not with not in clichés uh, and they actually they actively resisted this idea of typical scotland you know the glorious yeah. failure thing they didn't want that to be the narrative of this uh, and actually the the tone was about this is tremendous progress. Look how far we've come. Look how far we're going to go next. Yeah. And, I, and there was that uplifting bit at the end, despite the disappointment of what happened in those three three games, that, that it's left on a real high of this, this tantalising, you know, kind of idea of what might be what might be possible for this group of players and, and for the for the women's game in Scotland. Yeah. Um, and I I just I, I wonder I wondered if that's something unique about that set of players. Or if that's that's just the tone that comes through the game, it's that you, you know, actually they don't want to be defined by, you know, the men's team's you know, glorious failures of the past. They actually want it to be, you know, this is their story. I mean, it's different. They, they get to write. They get to write their own story here. Yeah, I think, and I, I think, I, I think the footballers I spoke to are just are, are very open and very, very sort of honest. I think as well, which is you know, and so there isn't that cliche, and there isn't that sort of you know, just I guess saying what. Over the years, sometimes male footballers are you know, just expected to say. I think that people were very open, very honest about it, and as you say, also very positive and very, very focused. And I think again, with reflection now after having it out and people's response to it, I think a kind of part of what I wanted to do with the book was sort of reclaim their story a little bit from those last fifteen minutes in in Paris and. You know, it's it's easy. It was obviously. I mean, I was. We were actually right behind Lee Alexander's goals uh, for that that whole game. And you know, it, obviously, it was dramatic. It was emotional. You know, even now, it was still kind of almost unbelievable. But and it's. I think it's easy to fall into that. Well, that's the story of Scotland's women team or the story of the Scotland's World World Cup. And it's not. It's so much more than that. I think. And I think. One of the things that I actively say in the book is, you know, that the World Cup wasn't a failure. It, it was an absolute triumph. You know, when you put it in the context of where women's football has come from, what what women's football or what women's football have had to battle against, being at a World Cup, competing, running England and Japan, who were two great teams so close, and then as you know, as Shelley Kerr talked about being 15 minutes away from doing something amazing. You know, to to me, it, it was a triumph as much as it was disappointing in in that moment. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's something I think to be hugely proud of and how it's inspired people. And I think speaking to, to the squad and, and our people around the game, I think it's taken time for people to sort of reflect on that and sort of move, move, move on from that or, or put it in context. Um, but I think there definitely is a sort of pride in, in, what, in what was achieved, I think. And I think, you know, 
it's, if it's not about those 15 minutes in Paris. I mean, again, if you put it into context, and the number of times the men's team has qualified for the World Cup or Euros has never, never got out of their groups. You know, if Scotland had have had have got through that night, they would have been the first Scotland team in history to get to, to go through. So that's the sort of wider context. But actually, the bigger the bigger message, I think, I think it was Ifeo Medieki said at the time. You know, that there's a bigger message here. It's not about that. It's about actually people are watching you. People are sitting up and taking notice. You're being seen playing on an international stage, um, and actually the the legacy of that is is hopefully going to be phenomenal. That that people who watch that, and particularly young girls that watch that, will go. You know what? I want to play football, or actually, even if I'm playing football, I want to push myself on to be on that stage and doing what they're doing. I think um, that that point is really important, isn't it? About the, the kind of the discourse and the narrative around it all. Because even it was, it was although it was, I, I recently rewatched that Argentina game, and it was just as heartbreaking the second time round. But um, it's easy to remember. Uh, sorry, it's easy to forget that Argentina themselves were overcoming huge, you know, yeah. struggles and barriers just to be there, and their their story almost got sort of lost a little bit in it. And it was actually a massive success for them as well. I think it also relates to what you said earlier about that Glasgow City Hibs game. The game was brilliant. It was you, you were never bored in that game. That second yeah. half was just fantastic, wasn't it? And it does feel like, as you say, that political with a small p aspect to it, kind of for gender equality, was really sort of prominent throughout the whole tournament. And I just hope that coronavirus isn't going to put a kind of stop to that. Do you feel like things since the World Cup have slowed down, particularly because of coronavirus? I mean, obviously, everything, everything sort of slowed down, and and again, it goes back to that the idea of whether whether this battle is won. I mean, the, the, you've got professional players in Scotland at the moment who aren't even allowed to train, you know, and even though offering to pay for testing themselves just to be able to train uh, are being told no. So, I, I, I think there there it obviously has slowed things, and there is that danger of right, okay, well. From the authorities, let's focus on the men's game, keeping the men's game going, keeping those top two leagues going, you know, which is great. But actually, you know, there's a women's game that is, was on the brink of, you know, really excitement, a real competitive league with really strong players in it. And, and they're not even being allowed to train at the moment. So I think there is that there is that danger of of slipping back or losing that momentum. Um, from from what was achieved. And I think on a Scotland level as well, you know, obviously uh, not qualifying for the for the for the Euros is a blow, and I, and I think that's partly down again to that sort of just you know not being able to recover, not that that slowing of momentum of the you know I guess coming out of the Argentina game you probably needed to to move on and and you know and obviously they started to do that and started to revive and had great results, and then that was sort of stopped a bit I think and that's that's obviously halted halted the momentum a little bit. But again, it's it's a longer journey here, I think, you know, and I think, you know, if if it's taken 40 years, you know, from get to, get to A to B, you know, they get from B to C, you know, it, the, yeah, an interruption like this is obviously going to not be helpful, but I think there's a longer, there's a longer journey here to get, to get to, I mean, just going back to Argentina, I mean, I've, I've had to go back and rewatch it obviously a number of times for writing this book and speak to people about it and and you know it, it obviously is it is difficult but it was a bit cathartic in a way of just reflecting on that and and one of the things that struck me that pa totally passed me by in the sort of drama of of being behind Lee Alexander's goals was you know actually the the referee stopping the game so early 
yeah. it didn't just rob Scotland of the chance to progress. It robbed Argentina of the chance to progress. Now, that was the last thing on my mind, uh, you know, while we were sort of going, going a bit crazy behind the goals. But, you know, it just the, 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 there's, there's two teams there, as you said, who'd battled to get there, who had their own story, who, you know, were, were minutes away for, from, from doing something amazing. And, you know, the, the, the five or six minutes that probably should have been played after that penalty went in actually robbed both teams a chance to push on and, and go for an equalizer or go for a winner, sorry. How, how, much, how much do you think or how much would you agree with my kind of idea on that is that women's, women's football was used as a guinea pig for rule changes. So VAR was brought in for that World Cup and the referees had never used it before. You know, changes to the rules for, for goalkeepers moving off their line at penalties was brought in at the World Cup and the referees had never and never and the players had never had never followed yeah. those rules before. You know that wouldn't happen at a men's World Cup, bringing in such fundamental rule changes for the first time without being trialed. And I certainly, I, I went away, I left that game, thinking women's football have been used as a guinea pig for this. You know, this is this has been seen by by FIFA as a way that they can test out whether this rule change is a good idea or not. And it lasted three games, or the the opening group phases, and then they changed the guidance they gave to the referees on the basis of the fact that it it just hadn't worked, particularly goalkeepers moving off their line that Leigh Alexander was penalised for. And and that says something, to me anyway, quite significant about how the women's game was viewed, that it it was okay to put players and referees through that on the on the on the biggest stage of their lives and then see if it worked or not. Yeah. No, I, I think there's, de- there's definitely something in that argument, I think. And I guess it is these going back to that whether the battles won or not, it is these subtle differences, you know, so in, in terms of how the authorities view women women's football, I think. And you know, and, until you've got absolute parity and absolute equality then I think that that battle's still to be won and still to be fought, mm-hmm. I think. So that might manifest itself in, in, in incidents like that where they do test things, uh, test VAR in, in a, you know, an international competition that's the, the actual peak of these players' playing experience and, and lives, you know, um, and the vagaries of that and how it sort of, uh, you know, worked against Scotland in some instances, but, you know, it was totally absent in games like the Japan game, you know, those, those inconsistencies. Yeah, they were ironed out for the rest of the tournament, you know, that, that doesn't help in any of those players in, in those first, and, you know, and again, it's sort of this, this sort of subtle not viewing things as equal, again, going back to how, how women's football is being treated at the moment, particularly the Scottish Women's Premier League, you know, and, and not being able to trade, not being able to play when, you know, part-time teams in the Championship are, are, are happily playing away and training, uh, I think, again, just those, those little subtle things that, you know, while it's easy to go, yeah, we've got parity, the women can play, you know, there's none of the banning or anything like that. It, it's the it's the it's the barriers that are still it's still in the way that need to be constantly sort of uh, fought and, and broken down so that actually there is parity and it's treated treated absolutely equally. Mayor, I could I could talk all day about this and kind of find out your experiences of what it was like being at that World Cup and you know how many games you went to and all the rest of it. But um, I, I think something you said earlier, Stephen, is really important. You don't want this story to be about you. It's about the women's game. Um, so I'll maybe I'll maybe keep those those uh, those questions for the next time we manage to get back to Starks Park and we need something to talk about to distract I, ourselves from the I, action. I tell you, about the full pain of it's it's interesting because I've I've never been one to think the referees cheat or there's any sort of anything dodgy going on, but that. 
that Argentina game was probably the one in, in 40 years of watching football. I mean, I, I know now with hindsight it wasn't, you know, at most it was incompetence, but I think it was probably the one time I just thought, yeah, there's actual cheating going on here. Somebody's decided that Scotland are not progressing and, you know, that that's what's happened and that's what. And then actually the, fun, the funny thing was, uh, and again, it's one of these hindsight things. I mean, it really annoyed me at the time, but now I understand why a neutral in the crowd would be getting behind Argentina as they came back. But as Argentina started to come back, obviously a lot of the French neutrals around about us thought, this is great, this is a great game, and, and started totally supporting Argentina. So we, you're something you so passionately cared about, and then you know, you're know you surrounded by like 500 neutrals, just, <laughs> just cheering on Argentina and kind of enjoying our pain was, was another sort of add, added level to it. But, but again, as I, as I write in the book, I mean, um, in my own forward, you know, the one that I do talk about my own experience, um, when the game finished and once we sort of realised that, we did go around to the front of the stadium, you know, partly for, for our daughter, um, but partly just because we thought, if we go home now, you know, this you're just going to be sitting dwelling on this. So it was a bit of a distraction. Um, and, and actually, you know, we waited and the team came out, you know, we waited an hour. There were some other Scottish fans there. Uh, we waited an hour, you know, we obviously sort of had our sort of debrief or moan about what had happened with the other fans that were there. And then obviously the players came and signed a few autographs and stuff like that. And, and as I tell the story in the book, you know, when, when, when Grace was asked to write a bit about women's football and a World Cup experience for the Wraith programme, actually that moment was what she picked out as, as the best, you know, the highlight of the trip was standing outside the Parc de France after that game, waiting on the Scotland players, seeing the Scotland players. And, you know, we went like another 10 games after that we stayed right through to the final saw some great games amazing atmospheres full stadium in Lyon for the final yet actually it was the Scotland team that she picked out as her highlight of that even after that defeat and even after the sort of harshness of that match it was still I'm inspired by this this was my favourite moment and I think again that goes back to that inspiring a generation thing that you know it's not about those 15 minutes it's about Here's a team that have, have achieved great things, two tournaments in a row, competed on that world stage, and are absolutely inspiring thousands of, of young boys and girls across the nation to actually go, I want to play football and I want to play for Scotland. Well, I, I think that's probably a perfect place to, to kind of finish this story. And I want to congratulate you on the successful job that you've done indoctrinating your daughter uh, on, on being a football addict because that sounds like she's hooked and it'll be with her for, for a long long time so that's yeah. fantastic yeah and I mean again one of the quotes from Anna Senior on the book sort of struck, stuck with me as well she said you know like talking about how much she loves football and, and what football brings to to people that play it particularly obviously girls and women she said you know like even if someone just plays it up to their 20 and then stops you know, they don't become a Kim Little or they don't, you know, keep keep it going. What they've gained in those years will stay with them for the rest of their lives. And I think that that's hugely important and it's absolutely true. And again, it's going back to how how the players talk about it, you know, it struck me really how how some of the players talked about, I guess, what football had given them, both in terms of friendships, experiences, uh, you know, mental strength. And, and happiness, I think Pauline Hamill, Pauline Hamill was uh, one of one of her comments was, you know, it's given football's given me happiness, and I think just the power of 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 that and of this story, I think, 
to 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 let people know about that and what they've achieved, I think is is, is hugely important as well. I suppose one one last question is where can people buy the book, Stephen? Yes, I did write that down, so I wouldn't forget. Yeah, so it comes out on the fifteenth of March. Um, it's uh, you can buy it. It's uh, it's on all the usual sort of uh, online retailers and that sort of thing. But you can go to uh, www.pitchpublishing.co.uk forward slash shop forward slash arrival. So if you go to Pitch Publishing's website, then you can you can see uh, the various ways to 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 buy the book. So uh, so it's uh, twelve pound ninety nine. Uh, there are obviously you do get the story. There also are I should have mentioned there's there's sort of two full color sections from from the sort of SFA archive. I mean the SFA are fantastic and gave me full access to their sort of uh, photographic archive from the World Cup. So there's 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 two great sort of color photo sections of the team and games and behind the scenes and and and, and stuff like that, which is fantastic. So great. Well, we'll we'll make sure we include a link to it in the uh, in the program notes for the podcast so people Brilliant. can just. Uh, through and get it from from pitch publishing so thank you very much for joining us on the podcast it's been an absolute treat no problem yeah. absolute pleasure so thanks again to Stephen for joining us for the podcast what did you make of that andrew i loved i loved that um just uh really he's obviously so very aware of the fact that this is you know a retelling of other people's stories and he's handled it so delicately i think as well and and, and properly as well um it's just a really really lovely guy to be honest yeah. <laughs> like he's telling a great story and or retelling a great story other people's stories and um i it, it's going to be a great read when it when it comes out when people can get their hands on it and on march yeah. the 13th march the 15th i think is, is the release date um yeah it's, 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 a, it's a great story and, it, and it's such a shame that um scottish women's national team football was on such a high after the world cup despite the disappointment of how, of how that campaign finished they went into the qualifying fixtures for the start of the Euros and it was going really, really well. And then the pandemic hit um, and then everything, everything in the world stopped, but including including the, the women's football. And when they had those, you know, the, the next two, three qualifiers in November, December, um, a couple of narrow defeats there. And they've, they've ultimately not been able to follow up competing in the World Cup with another uh, another qualification for the Euros. And, and I really hope that doesn't you know, kind of harm the profile of the women's game in Scotland um, after it being so much attention towards it in the summer of 2019 and you know the, the, the farewell at Hamden against Jamaica uh, just before the team flew out to France uh, so it felt like there was there was real momentum behind the behind the women's game uh, and I hope we managed to kind of pick up where we left off with that when when things finally returned to normal um, I think there's a lot to be positive about uh, in the women's game just the spirited performances the levels of skill that were there uh, on display in the squad and there's a lot of young players who are only going to get better in, in that team so hopefully not too long before we have another campaign that we can get right behind them yeah and i think as stephen has pointed out you know women's sport has suffered disproportionately to, to men's sport during during the pandemic so um you know i think various bits of research have highlighted the, the, the ways in which um there have been greater barriers in restarting women's sport that haven't mm. sort of been applied to men's sport um, whether that be players that are allowed to train, on, or whether that be um, the, the the amount of leagues that are allowed to you know rejoin as well, I remember yeah. that was, was quite a prominent campaign as well. So, as you say, hopefully the the, the national team can um, recapture some of that earlier form and um, 
once things get back to some sort of sense of yeah. normality, they can put themselves back on the on the on the highest stages again. But uh, yeah. this this book is a sort of a, a, an amazing contribution towards that that knowledge, as, as Stephen himself says. You know, a lot of this story is invisible within the kind of mainstream media. There's not a lot of sort of literature out there on on these people's stories. So to sort yeah. of have that in a, in, a, in, a, in a book format is is, is a really nice addition to it all. I think there's a lot of work to be done and, and continue to develop the, the women's game in, in Scotland. And my big hope is that, um, as I said in the, in, in the interview with Stephen, is that we don't just follow the same mistakes that men's game game has and this, this sort of structural uh, inequalities that are that within the game and the distribution of power in the hands of a, of, of a few in, in terms of in terms of clubs and thinking and that that, that that sometimes a lack of competitiveness that's, that's in the, the men's domestic game. I think there's an opportunity to build something better for the women's game. It's still, it's been around for a long time, but it's, it's we're, we're, we're now got the opportunity to build the structures that will that will give it the best chance of success. Uh, and I, I think some of the ideas that we have about you know what the men's game should have been, what's wrong with the men's game and what it should be like, there's an opportunity to actually build that in, in the women's game and do a better job of it about fairness, about you know, distribution of resources, about creating a competitive environment and actually setting the league up so that it's always a competitive environment because what we find is, is that that's the best way for, for football to prosper. Uh, and, I, and I think the, um, the leaps forward that the women's game has taken uh, over, the, over the, the last few decades uh, are in part due to it being a, a more level playing field than the men's game uh, is or, and, and, and has been. So I, I think that it could be a, a really fertile ground for us to get some of those ideas in, into practice and actually show the men's game what it should be um, if, it, if, it, if, it, if it followed some of those, those same steps. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so tell us a little bit about some of the other things that um, supporters there at Scotland have been up to lately, Alan. Um, well, again, support to support to our members. Um, so we're supporting a few trusts as they uh, as they you know try and you know, get some of the boring, important work done during during lockdown uh, around their governance, around you know setting up campaigns and, and getting getting ready for for what comes next. Um, we also, I think, we have an opportunity as a supporters movement, not just supporters direct Scotland, but as a, as as, a, as the wider supporters movement, uh, to positively influence Scot uh, football's restart. Um, and we'll be looking at ways that we can you know, you know, help Scottish football to come back stronger after the pandemic. Uh, we're involved in lump, a number of structures there. We'll be trying to, to kind of open up that conversation. And one of the things we've, we've done to try and create a really compelling um, kind of picture or a, a compelling uh, reason to, to, to come back stronger is something we talked about in last week's podcast um, about the... Um, about the Scottish football utopia hashtag and that, that survey that we put live a couple of weeks back. Uh, so we're continuing to gather people's ideas about what they really want Scottish football to look like. Uh, and I think there's an opportunity as we're bringing football back from the pandemic to say, okay, so is any of this possible? You know, as, as we recover, can we actually build a more solid foundation for our game going forward uh, and avoid some of the, some of the difficult uh, kind of experiences of the past, the past year you know, the curtailment of last last uh, the last season, um, the high court battle, the arbitration or mediation—I can't remember what it was officially called. Those, those processes, the failed league reconstruction conversations. Uh, can we actually use what football fans want, their aspirations for the future, as the as the magnet to pull a better solution forward as as we restart? 
So that's going to be something that we're that we're trying to engage people in over the next couple of months. And your contributions are really, really helpful in, in, in painting that picture about what we think Scotland could be like if we if we if we're able to, to start with a blank sheet of paper, what it would look like, and can we actually get there from where we are uh, just now? So how can uh, how can people go and give their uh, two pence thoughts? So if you search on Twitter for the hashtag Scottish Football Utopia, you should be able to find the survey straight away. There's a link on the front page of the, the Supporters Direct Scotland website um, to that to that survey. Um, and it's a very, it can be as quick or as or it can be a, a, as long an answer or short an answer as you want to provide to that. Um, so there are no rules. Um, just write whatever you want on that on that survey. Tell us what you want Scottish football to look like. Uh, and we'll take that and we'll do something with it. We're not sure exactly what, because it depends what's written, it depends what opportunity we have to engage people with it. But we'll try and, we'll try and take as, as broad a set of inputs as possible into these conversations. So hashtag Scottish Football Utopia. Okay, perfect. Thank you very much. Well, that's that's all for this week's episode and we'll be back next week with, a, with another brand new podcast. So until then, have a winning week. Have a winning week. If you're a fan of the podcast and the other work SD Scotland does, how about signing up as a member on our Patreon page? A few pounds every month will help us to continue offering advice and helping supporters, clubs and communities across Scotland.